Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from radical remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. Hello, and welcome to the Stories That Heal podcast. This is Liz, and today Carla and I are excited to welcome our special guest, Dr. Linda Isaacs. Dr. Isaacs is a graduate of the University of Kentucky and of Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. While she is certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine, she has spent her professional career providing enzyme-based nutritional programs to patients with cancer and other illnesses. Well, hello, Dr. Isaacs. Welcome to our show. Well, thank you so much for having me. We're so thrilled to have you here today. You've been a friend of Radical Remission for a long time. And uh, for our listeners, why don't we start out with you, um, if you don't mind sharing how, how does a board-certified internal medicine physician become interested in alternative approaches to cancer? Well, I actually became interested in alternative approaches to cancer before I became a board-certified internist. I was in medical school assigned as a third-year student to an internal medicine team, and another member of that team was the intern who was named Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez. And Dr. Gonzalez was at that time um, investigating the work of a man named William Donald Kelly. Um, Kelly was an orthodontist by training, but he had become an alternative cancer practitioner, um, partly because of his own experiences with what was almost certainly cancer. Anyway, Nick Gonzalez was investigating Kelly's work at the time that I met him. And there were some remarkable cases that he was uh, over, he was discovering in Dr. Kelly's files. So he was willing to talk to anyone who would listen. I was willing to listen. And I became convinced that this method needed to be followed up on. So that's what I've been doing ever since. That's incredible, Dr. Linda, and we'd love to know more about that approach. I mean, I understand it's more of a nutritional approach to cancer. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. Um, there are three aspects to what I tell patients to do. Um, one of them is diet. And with this approach, the diets can vary from person to person and from cancer type to cancer type. What they have in common is eliminating things like white flour, white sugar, um, pro the processed foods that really everybody is now accepting that these are not good for us. Uh, it also We also recommend organic food to everybody, um, good quality food in effect. But in terms of the amount of animal protein. There's, there are some people, um, typically in terms of cancer with the immune type cancers like leukemia or lymphoma or myeloma, those patients are most likely going to wind up on a diet that's pretty heavy in animal protein and fat. Whereas people with the more typical kinds of cancer, the carcinomas like breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate, they will wind up on a diet that is more vegetarian, but will include some eggs, dairy, and fish. Um, so the diets do vary from person to person, and that's a big component. 
Um, the second component is nutritional supplements. And the, the, the key product for that is actually proteolytic pancreatic enzymes. Those are the enzymes that break down protein. And there's a particular product that's in essence freeze-dried pancreas that we use a lot of. There's, there's a long history of the use of enzymes against cancer. Um, but that is, like I said, one of the most important supplements. And then there are others that are designed to strengthen the body. The last component is detoxification, um, specifically using coffee enemas. Um, and I know for mo many of your audience, this may be the weirdest thing they ever heard of. That's certainly how I felt the first time I heard of coffee enemas. I was like, what? Um, but almost without exception, our patients, once they try them, they love them because they feel so much better um, when they do them. So that is the three aspects of the protocol on diet supplements with an emphasis on pancreatic enzymes and detoxification. Fantastic. That's um, That really lines up to some degree with the radical remission healing factors, but but adds mm -hmm. some, some more detail to it. Um, and I'm just curious, do, do your patients uh, tend to be pretty compliant with these things or do they struggle? Well, I try to have my staff ask a lot of questions before somebody becomes a patient, just to be sure that they understand what they're getting involved with, because certainly the vast majority of people are not going to follow through with something like this. So I want to be sure that they know what they're getting involved with and that they're willing to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, I'd say the adherence amongst my patients, the ones that actually come in, is really pretty high. And I think if people would only be willing to give those coffee enemas a chance, it would be even higher. I think it's fascinating when you outline the um, nutritional protocol based on the types of cancer. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? I think you're referring to the different dietary aspects. Yes. yes. Um, well, a lot of this is based on the clinical observations of Dr. Kelly before us, but of course, our own clinical observations having utilized the method. Um, the idea behind it is that different people need different things. And if you think about it, um, humans have existed in a wide variety of ecosystems on this earth, everywhere from places where there's tons of plants to eat to places where there's no plants to eat. Uh, and humans have managed to survive. But we believe that different people, you know, just based on their, their ancestry, will have different uh, different diets that will work better for them. Uh, and on a practical level, what we found, again, is that the, the people with the blood dyscrasias or the, the blood cancers are the ones that do need a, a diet that's maybe closer to that ketogenic diet that's that's uh, somewhat in vogue at the present time, whereas people with the, the hard cancers are more likely to do well on a more vegetarian diet. And interestingly enough, um, almost without exception, patients are very happy with the diet I give them. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, I'll have people with, say, breast cancer, and they would, they'll come in and they say, you're not going to tell me to eat a lot of meat, are you? Because I just don't like it. And, and I say, no, uh, you don't have to eat that. In fact, I'd rather you didn't. And they're relieved. 
Whereas the people with the blood disorders, it's, you know, this back in the days when everybody was thinking they should eat vegetarian, uh, they would look at me as if a steak had come down from the heavens and landed in front of them. They were so happy to hear that they could eat meat. Um, so for the most part, people are attracted to what's good for them, with the exception of sugar, which nobody should eat. And unfortunately, we all love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for clarifying that. I think it's so interesting. to that's, that's a perfect way to showcase how individual diet really is. And, you know, just seeing that different cancers can thrive, um, different cancer survivors can thrive um, with different kinds of diets is is really really important i think that message is is really important to share so thank you for that yeah i completely agree with that and um you know that sugar piece it is it's an addiction for for all of us and um it it definitely has to be managed so um tough one but but it's not impossible so since your program is primarily nutritional and orientation, how do you think a patient's psychology and spiritual connection or orientation fit into their treatment? Well, I think that there's an enormous contribution of emotional and spiritual aspects. And sometimes they play out in a very obvious way and that somebody who is not you know seeking to expand their positive emotions or doesn't have a strong will to live you know if people aren't addressing those factors in their life well then how are they going to be motivated to do all this stuff to swallow all these pills to go grocery shopping to tell their friends i can't meet you for lunch but can we take a walk instead you know all of that is going to require motivation for change. And that motivation is going to come from spiritual and emotional strength. So developing sources of that is really important. Yeah, great. I know, personally, as a metastatic breast cancer thriver, um, you know, I really needed to know my why. And, and that's the strong reasons for living out of radical remission. What's my why for doing all this hard work that I'm doing to change my lifestyle? So um, definitely a, a believer in all of that. And, you know, the other thing I think is so important is, is an attitude, right? So, um, you know, I imagine you also believe that attitude, the patient's attitude can be really important, right? It makes a difference in how they approach everything that they're doing. Yes, absolutely. And again, you know, having having that positive attitude towards what they're doing um, and even just thinking through very clearly what they want and what what their goals are, uh, you know, just just like, for example, the strong will to live. I mean, sometimes somebody may not have that. And that's it's not a moral judgment. It's it's just a clarity of purpose. You know, if, if somebody decides that they they don't want to fight, I don't think that should be a, a judgment against them in any way, shape or form. Um, and I'll also say that the attitude of the patient towards their physicians, you know, as a physician, of course, it matters to me. And, you know, what I'm always hoping for is somebody who will will just be willing to to believe that I'm doing the best I know how to do for them, you know, that 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 is my motivation, because it is. But of course, you know, sometimes people approach doctors with fear and suspicion, I'm not blaming them. But it makes it very difficult to take care of them when that's when that's what you're receiving. 
Yeah, I think it is important to have a good relationship with your practitioner, with your your whole healing team, right? Mm -hmm. And there is scientific studies that have been done that show that the relationship you have with your doctor, the belief you have in them makes the difference in, mm -hmm. in your health and healing. So definitely um, a good point. Yeah, I'd be curious, actually, as you went through all of your different you know, phases of, you know, medicine, uh, getting your degrees and whatnot. Um, did you have any obstacles when it came to choosing to kind of emphasize the alternative path? Was that, did you have any, you know, resistance to that? Well, bear in mind that when I was in medical school or in doing my internal medicine training, uh, that was a pretty hostile time towards alternative medicine. It's better now. It's still not fabulous, but it's better now. I, I didn't talk about it, so they didn't know, and so it didn't bother them. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's great. Would you like to share some of your notable um, case histories with our audience? Sure. Uh, I was thinking that it would be fun to just give a little update and discussion about Bob because Bob was in the Radical Remission docu-series, specifically the one about, I think it was, what was it called? Herbs and Nutrition, something like that. Maybe you Herbs and Supplements, me. yeah. Herbs and Supplements, Yes. Bob was originally diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in early 2009. And he actually had a procedure called the Whipple, which is a surgical procedure where part of the pancreas was removed. Now, um, at the time that the cancer was removed, he had um, a, a 1.7 centimeter tumor. So it was a reasonably, reasonably large tumor. Um, it had gone outside the pancreas a little bit, which is not a good sign. And um, so he was told that he should get chemotherapy, but he refused it and instead came to see me in April of 2009. Right before he got on the plane to come see me, his doctors locally actually ordered a CAT scan. Now, he had had some chest x-rays before that were completely clear, but uh, at the time that he had this CAT scan, it showed that he had several little nodules in his lungs. And so that would suggest that the pancreatic cancer might have actually spread at that point. Um, so he started with me. Uh, a few months later, he had another CAT scan, and that showed that the, the little spots on the lungs had actually improved a little bit. And then a, a few months later, he had another scan, which showed that they were now stable. Um, now, Bob, bear in mind, this is, we're talking 2009, um, 2010, when he had that last chest X-ray, I mean, CAT scan. And he, Bob is still alive and with us. Um, he was interviewed for the docu-series, as I mentioned, was doing great at that time, and he continues to do very well. I spoke to him a few months ago, and he was continuing with his vigorous exercise routine and um, was, was living his, his very active life. Uh, pancreatic cancer, um, surgery can sometimes be curative, but not usually. Um, can pancreatic cancer even with surgically surgical treatment of uh, 75% of the people that have that procedure wind up having a recurrence of their disease. So uh, 
then you throw in that CAT scan, which looked like he was indeed having a recurrence shortly after his procedure. Um, but he's been on this protocol for many, many years, and he is now what uh, we're talking more than 13 years out um, from his diagnosis. So that's an example of a patient that's done very well on this protocol. That's incredible. I adore watching that part of the docuseries because he's such a pleasure and um, just a, a real interesting guy. And just a little side plug for our docuseries. If you haven't um if you haven't seen the Radical Remission docuseries, it's 10 episodes, and this specific one we're talking about is highlighting the herbs and supplements factor. Um, absolutely, you know, take that time to to check it out because you'll see all things Radical Remission in each of these episodes. So um, we'll definitely put some more information in the show notes so that you can watch Bob's story uh, and hear um, and witness, you know, what Dr. Isaacs has been sharing today. Um, so while I have you here, I wanted to clarify um, if there's any type of patient that is not eligible to, or someone that isn't a good fit for the type of work that you do, um, is there an appropriateness or are there certain patients that are not qualified to do this work with you? Well, what I offer for patients is the opportunity to send in information about themselves before they actually make the trip or make an appointment or pay me any money. Um, I make it possible for them to submit information that I'll review to see if I do think it's a good fit. Um, having said that, um, there are some previous treatments that would make it very difficult for this protocol to work. And this is just from our practical experience. A bone marrow transplant, for example, which is a, it can be an effective treatment for some types of cancer, but it's also a very toxic treatment. And if somebody has had that and then has a recurrence and wants to use this treatment, it's not too likely to work. Um, so that's one example. But uh, like I said, I, I offer people a chance to go ahead and send their information in and I'll review it. And if I don't think this is the way they should go, I'll let them know. And I'm sorry, if you didn't already mention it, it folks, I, I believe when I read your intake form, folks who've done already done chemo or certain treatments are are not eligible. Is that correct? No, that's not correct. It really ah, okay. depends on the cancer. Um, there are uh -huh. some types of cancers that if they if people have been heavily pretreated, there's it's this isn't gonna work. Um I and I I I always would say that what I would also suggest is that not doing this simultaneously with chemotherapy or radiation, just because the method of action is very different. Um, so I guess I keep trying to think of a good analogy. And the only one I can come up with is you have mice in your basement. So you're going to put a cat down there, but you're also going to throw a grenade down there, oh. you know, just, just <laughs> in case the cat can't take care of it. Yeah. It's just not good for the cat. Um, and it's also not good for your basement, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> it's just they're they're philosophically very different. So I really don't suggest doing them at the same time. And that's probably how you might have gotten that misunderstanding. Um, and it it really depends on the cancer uh, as to whether and and how far along the patient is. You know, some of the the things that would make me tell someone they should go elsewhere are fairly straightforward. Like, 
this this program involves taking a lot of supplements uh, in the neighborhood of 200 a day. And if somebody's not eating fairly solidly, they're not going to be able to do this. Um, so if if they're struggling to get applesauce down, this is not the program for them. Um, and I'd also say on a, on a philosophical level, sometimes patients are looking for a program that they do for themselves, and sometimes patients are looking for a program that's done to them. Mm. Um, so you go and you get an intravenous something or other, whether it be chemo or nutrition. Um, this, this is a very active program. People have to participate, and that will appeal to some and not to others. Yeah, I would I I see that. And thank you for the clarification. And and there are people who, you know, want the doctor to just tell them what to do and they just follow doctor's orders. What we found with radical remission survivors is, you know, to be empowered is certainly going to get you a better outcome. If you're in charge of your own healing, if you're the CEO of your health, and Dr. Isaacs is sitting at the boardroom table as one of your advisors, along with your acupuncturist and, you know, you know, whoever else you might have on the team, you're going to have a better outcome. So I agree with that. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, let's go to the, the radical remission healing factors. So how have they influenced your practice or how might you share that with your patients? Um Tell me how it plays in a little bit to your practice. Sure. Um, well, the the things that I'm very specific about telling people what I think they should do and why, of course, um, would be diet and supplements. So those are two out of your, your 10 factors. Many of the others, I am not as prescriptive because I'm not a therapist. I'm not a you know spiritual counselor. Uh, and people find their own way of addressing those issues, I believe, but they're critically important. There's no question about it. So what I do is I try to provide kind of breadcrumbs, you know, throwing feelers out there as I go along. Um, you know, there are some people that uh, that have a lot of emotional work to do, and there's others that don't. Um, and also, I find that many times when they first come in, it's it's as if the needs of the body override everything. But then about 12 to 18 months in, those emotional and spiritual things start becoming more important for them. Um, so I just try to help as I can mm -hmm. and also know that there are other places they can go for that help. Being diagnosed with a serious health challenge can be emotional and overwhelming. At Radical Remission, we believe no one needs to face a diagnosis alone. Our certified health coaches work one-on-one -on -one or in small groups to support people living with a diagnosis to integrate the 10 healing factors of Radical Remission. Our team of coaches include national board certified health coaches, doctors, nurses, and other medical practitioners, as well as mental health providers. Our coaches meet each person where they are on their healing journey to offer support, accountability, and goal setting in a positive manner. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find your health coach and connect with them to learn more about what it might look like to work together. See the show notes for links to find a coach on RadicalRemission.com. If you would like to learn more about the healing factors, 
Join a Radical Remission workshop to learn how to implement them into your life. You will learn how lifestyle choices such as diet change, increasing positive emotions, empowerment, and more can boost your immune system in scientifically proven ways. Our workshops follow a unique interactive format that encourages sharing and social support. You will create a self-designed one-week, one-month, and six-month action plan that you can begin to implement right away. For many, a Radical Remission workshop is the first step in finding a like-minded, uplifting, healing community. The 10 factors of Radical Remission can be used safely by anyone on any healing journey, as well as for prevention. These 10 factors will aid you in improving your immune function and have helped many people overcome cancer or other chronic diseases. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find virtual and in-person workshops and other events. So Dr. Isaacs, I'd love to take you back to discuss a little bit more about the pancreatic enzymes. Uh, I, I see that conventional scientists consider pancreatic enzymes as only digestive enzymes. Who first mm -hmm. proposed that they have an anti-cancer effect? More than 100 years ago, a scientist in Edinburgh, Scotland, suggested that pancreatic enzymes were the body's primary defense against cancer. The way that he came up with that, uh, he was a man named John Beard, and he came up with that because he was an embryologist. That's a study of the very early stages of life. And you might wonder, well, what has that got to do with cancer? But in fact, um, embryonic cells look and act a lot like cancer cells. Uh, and this is something that was observed even before Beard. There was a lot of argument back then about whether, whether cancer was a mature cell that somehow went crazy or whether it was an embryonic type cell that got crazy. Um, and Beard had noticed that cancer cells and a particular type of embryonic cell looked a lot alike. And that cell is one that's called the trophoblast. That is the early stages of the placenta. And that's the connection between the mother and baby that allows for nutrients and waste to be exchanged. The job of the trophoblast then, as the baby, the little embryo, passes into the uterus, is to latch onto the uterus, to invade, and to create a blood supply, very much like cancer does. Cancer invades, cancer creates a blood supply. And Beard noticed that under the microscope, those two tissues looked a lot alike. But there's one big difference. Cancer just keeps going. At a certain point, the trophoblast stops, it matures, it turns into the placenta that neatly peels off at the time of delivery and leaves the uterus intact for the next pregnancy. And so Beard speculated that if he could find the signal that made the trophoblast mature, he could potentially find an answer to cancer. So what he noticed in the body of the mother and of the baby, I, I'm sorry, he looked at a lot of different things about the mother and the baby, like what was going on around that time, which is around two months in a human pregnancy. And what he noticed in a number of different species was that at the time that the trophoblast stopped invading, the baby started making pancreatic enzymes. 
Now, if the only reason pancreatic enzymes exist is to digest food, then that baby doesn't need to be making them until a good nine months, you know, seven months later, because that baby's not going to see a meal until after it's born. But if the reason the baby makes pancreatic enzymes so early is because the pancreatic enzymes control the behavior of the trophoblast, it makes all kinds of sense that they're made so early. So that was Beard's speculation. Now, he was not a medical doctor. He was a scientist, a PhD, a professor. Um, so he was only able to test it for himself in a mouse model with some good results. But in terms of treating people, around that time, this is between 1900 and 1915 and thereabouts, uh, various practitioners did try using pancreatic enzymes in cancer. Some of them had very good results. Some of them did not. Um, Beard's explanation for that was you're not using good quality enzymes. And he was actually advocating that doctors go to a slaughterhouse, get a pancreas, mince it up, and inject it. Strangely enough, most doctors didn't really want to do that. They wanted to use the, the kind of enzymes that they could purchase from a pharmaceutical company. And Beard said, those aren't necessarily good quality products and you're not necessarily mixing them up right. There's too many variables here. Um, he put all that in a book um, that was published in 1911. But because there was so much back and forth about all of this, um, and then meanwhile, radiation came along, which people thought was going to be the magic bullet. Um, so Beard's work was lost um, pretty much. There, were, there have been other practitioners before uh, Dr. Kelly um, started using enzymes orally. Um, there's been some other practitioners that have used them, but for the most part, uh, the medical world just kind of lost track of Dr. Beard and his theories. Um, there has been more recent work that would support Beard's theories. Um, for instance, that similarity of cancer and the trophoblast is very well documented at this point on a molecular level. And it turns out that there are various receptors on the surfaces of both cancer cells and trophoblast cells where pancreatic enzymes can come along and snip off the top, change the behavior of the cell. Um, and the idea in general that pancreatic enzymes are only good for digestion is completely out of date. Uh, there's a good 10 or 15 years worth of research saying that they, they do all kinds of things in the body. Um, so bit by bit, the world is inching towards seeing that what Beard said more than 100 years ago may well be correct. So uh, where would you, where do you source your pancreatic enzymes from these days? Uh, yes, the, the pancreatic enzymes that I use are derived from a pig source. Um, the reason being that pigs are like people in the sense that we only have one stomach. Um, some of the other animals that are used for meat, like uh, cows or sheep, have multiple stomachs. So their enzyme, uh, their enzyme panoply isn't quite the same as humans is. Pigs are closer. Mm. Uh, so they're sourced from pigs and they're freeze-dried and processed in New Zealand um, and then shipped to the United States for encapsulation. Great. Sounds better than going to the farm. <laughs> Shopping a bureau. And yeah, I would agree. Well, I've, I've had a few patients ask me if they could do that. Like when, oh. one patient who lives in Alaska, her husband wanted to know how a bare pancreas would work. I have no idea. 
<laughs> well, hopefully someone picks up and really dives further into this research process for all of us. I certainly hope so. Um, there's actually a company that's investigating intravenous uh, pancreatic enzymes, but I think they're a long way from being ready to actually try it out in people. Yeah. Yeah, that tends to be the the model of research. You know, great ideas, but it definitely takes some time to get them, you know, decades, in fact, to get them to be a place at a place where they can be solutions sometimes. So, but it's great to have, thank you for that history, because I think it's really interesting to see that, you know, you and, and your colleagues have kind of picked up the torch and continued to keep that aspect of, of um, modalities alive. Oh, well, thanks. And I'll also mention on my website, which is www.drlindai.com, um, I have some written out articles, um, one that was published in a scientific journal and one that was published in a more lay magazine um, that cover what I just said. So if anybody wants to go and read that, uh, they can just go to my website and they'll be able to find that. And if they sign up for my newsletter, I'll, I'll send, I send out emails with what I do in bite-sized chunks, so to speak, to introduce people to my work. Excellent. Fantastic. We will definitely pop that in our show notes for sure. Yeah. So Dr. Linda, I can imagine that a lot of patients that come to you are asking about success rates, but um, what do you tend to focus on with them? And do you have another case study you might be able to share with us of a success story? Um, sure. Um, well, the, the whole topic of success rate is very tricky. Uh, and here again, I've got an article on my website. Dr. Gonzalez and I actually put one together uh, that was published, I think, 2013, maybe. I don't remember exactly when it was published, but just discussing why uh, quoting success rates like that from a private practice isn't really uh, solid, um, so to speak. Uh, what we focus on instead is uh, case reports, you know, reports of patients that have extraordinary outcomes. So what I mean by extraordinary is, you know, somebody who had definitely had cancer, no question about it, had a biopsy, did not have any kind of treatment that could have been curative and is still alive or had tumor regression or ideally both um, for a long period of time. And we, we used roughly three times the expected survival um, as kind of a benchmark for which cases we would consider worth publishing. And you know, just going back to that whole success rate question, you know, one of the one of the biggest challenges when trying to crunch those kind of numbers is that patients don't all fit into a neat category. Like how do you compare somebody who never had chemotherapy versus somebody who had a bone marrow transplant, you know, starting in on this treatment? Who do you include? Who do you leave out? Same issue with simple adherence. Do I count the person that only took half their pills or do I leave them out? You know, at, at what point is it really just gamesmanship with the data? So case reports are fairly clear cut. Um, and, you know, spontaneous remission will sometimes be raised as a possibility, but that is not common. Um, the, the people that studied that, uh, have studied that in the past and written about it, have said that the likelihood of any doctor seeing more than three even three cases of spontaneous remission is so unlikely that, quite frankly, you're more likely to win the lottery than to see that. 
a lot more likely to win the lottery, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so we focus on case reports for that reason. And so one of the the gentlemen that I like to talk about, because his case is just very, very straightforward, is a gentleman who was diagnosed with lymphoma in 1995. Now, Bob, who I talked about earlier, would be one of the people that was told to eat a more vegetarian diet. But this other gentleman, his first name is Michael, so I'll just I'll call him Michael. Uh, Michael um, was told to eat a meat diet because he had a lymphoma. Um, He was diagnosed in 95 um, after he basically swelled up from the waist down. You know, his his feet swelled up, his legs swelled up, uh, and he was a young man. He was, I think, in his 30s, maybe. Um, And so he, he really had no medical reason for this. So they put him in a CAT scan and discovered that he had a whole bunch of enlarged lymph nodes in his abdomen that were blocking lymphatic drainage, um, making him retain fluid like that. Uh, He had a biopsy and he turned out to have follicular lymphoma, which is one of the less aggressive lymphomas, but it's still not a disease you want to get. And it's... so he he never had any kind of chemotherapy or radiation or anything. The only things he had was a biopsy and he came to see me. That's it. Okay. Uh, and his fluid retention resolved uh, a few years later. I think it was May of 2001. So maybe six years later, he had a CAT scan that confirmed that all of those lymph nodes were completely gone. And he's had a few more CAT scans for one reason or another since then um, that have shown again that the cats the the lymph nodes have completely resolved. Um, he is now in his 60s. He's extremely healthy. I remember once I called him up just to check in on him, and he told me he was out back building a retaining wall um, to on his property. Um, and then a few years later, he took a three week. Uh, rafting tour down the through the Grand Canyon. So he's definitely an active guy enjoying his life. Um, and he's doing great. I spoke to him a few months ago, and he continues to flourish. That's fantastic. Does he also continue to do the enzymes? Or is this something that that like Bob is um, still doing the enzymes, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. In Michael's particular case, he was extremely adherent for probably about 10 years, and then he did slack off a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some people, that works, and for others, they get into trouble. It just varies from person to person. I'd be happier if he was taking a few enzymes, but he's doing fine, so I can't argue about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of it, too, is that the patients that slack off their protocol but continue to do well, they slacked off their enzymes, but they did not slack off on their diet. And many times, the coffee enemas sell themselves. They love them, um, almost without exception. And almost without exception, they're still doing that. And, and on that note, how often are you advising your patients to do those coffee en- enemas? Typically, they do two doses twice a day, um, which will take them, once they get the hang of it, 40 to 45 minutes um, in the morning and again at some point in the afternoon or or evening. Okay. And then how long do they continue doing those? Like I said, most most patients are perfectly happy to keep doing them. Um, So I, I, I recommend indefinitely. Got it. 
Right. Thank you. Not necessarily the same volume, but mm -hmm. this is a this is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, one of the things I that I want people to to realize is that this isn't like they're going to do it for three months or six months or a year or two years. It's it's a lifestyle change, and it takes a long time for things to resolve. Um, another you know example of that. This is a case from Dr. Gonzalez's uh, patient collection, not my own, but you know we we work together of course, and all of these are in some case report articles that people can get off my website. But uh, there was a gentleman with pancreatic cancer who was diagnosed, I believe it was 1991. And at that time, he had a tumor in his pancreas and four tumors in his liver. So he'd been told he'd be dead in three months. Mm -hmm. He came to see Dr. Gonzalez, started on his program, and two years after he started, he got another scan, and he had four. He had a tumor in his pancreas, and I believe he might have even had an extra tumor in his liver. But he was feeling well. He was told he'd be dead in three months, but now it was two years, so he didn't worry about it. Um, but he stayed with his protocol. Seven years after he started his program was when he went and got another scan and everything was gone. But that's how long it took. Somewhere between two years and seven years is when things went away. We've had other patients that seem to be coexisting with a walled off tumor because do another scan, mass is still there, patients alive, should have been dead, you know, in some cases like 10 years ago. Tumor's still there, you know, so what? The, the body has walled it off and the patient is doing fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's just as much of a success story as somebody that's no evidence of disease. So yeah, mm -hmm. thanks. Is there anything else from your experience as a healer that you'd like to share with somebody that's been newly diagnosed? Um, I think the biggest thing that I would tell somebody who's been newly diagnosed is to take a moment to breathe and think, you know, mm -hmm. because many times the medical establishment will be very focused on getting you moving, getting you going, um, getting you into a treatment plan. And that may be appropriate and it may not. Um, it's a rare thing that there's anything that's so urgent that you need to start treatment tomorrow. Um, having said that, of course, I'm not advocating that you wait for months and months and months to make decisions either. But most of the time, the people that I see that regret the decisions that they made, it was because they got pushed into something without really thinking it through. So like I said, um, the the number of times that you need to start treatment tomorrow is it's relatively small. And usually those people, people are so sick they're in the hospital. You know, if you're feeling okay and you're not, you know, you you don't have you know, like bone pain or, you know, terrible abnormalities on your blood work, you can take a little bit of time to think through your options and then make a decision. Yeah, I appreciate that because that was the case for me. And I actually did have a nurse practitioner tell me this isn't a physical emergency. It's more of an emotional one, but take your time. Yeah, well said. Exactly. And thank you for saying that too, because it really, um, that is something that we try to bring to people's attention with the empowerment factor in radical remission is, you know, realizing that, um, you know, it, the cancer didn't arrive overnight. Right. So it you can take, you know, a few days or weeks or whatever feels like the right, uh, you know, right way for you to really 
get your personal treatment plan in place so that you can find, I mean, how many people have their uh, healing team known in advance prior to diagnosis? Not many. Um, and so that takes some time to really find out, you know, what are the options? What are the alternatives? What are the conventional options? And what's the right one for them? It's it's really very, very personal. And it needs to come from a place of um, being, making a, a, a decision that when you're not in that fight or flight mode, right, you're, you're making a decision based on what's best, not what um, is just the fastest answer because you're in this, you know, state of, of panic, if you will. So I really appreciate you. That's great advice for someone who's newly diagnosed. Um, I really feel like that that's fantastic information for them to hear. So, yeah, that, that I think would be very helpful for a lot of people. And, you know, also I think people have to think through what, how much information do they want and be prepared to ask questions uh, if they want to know everything. Because unfortunately, I think with the best of intentions, um, oncologists can sometimes word, use words that are confusing and are misconstrued by the patients to mean something more positive than they actually do. You know, for example, this cancer is treatable. Um, a patient might hear that as curable, but it's not necessarily the same thing. And you, you have to, if you really want to know the truth, you have to ask the questions. Um, and you know, many of our best patients are the ones that ask those tough questions and realize that they didn't like those answers and they went looking for a different answer. Yes, exactly. Well, let's um, give you a chance to share where our audience can connect with you. I know we shared your website, but what is the best way for someone who wants to work with you? Reach out. Well, really, it is my website, because what I've done with the site is describe what I do um, and give a list of what I'd like them to send in about themselves if they decide they want to become a patient. So there's a section on my site called for new patients that breaks down what I'd like to know, what information I'd like for them to send me, uh, and details what to do after they send it in. Um, so like I said, I offer that service free of charge. You know, I don't want somebody to travel long distances and then have me tell them I don't think this is a good fit. Um, so my website is really the best place. And that website, again, www.drlindai.com. Perfect. And do you see people uh, virtually or through telehealth? Unfortunately, the licensure requirements for a medical doctor in the state of Texas require that in order to begin a doctor-patient relationship, I have to see them physically. Okay. So I'm really required to do that. So if, if any of your audience thinks that's unreasonable, I would urge you to write to your legislators on a state and federal <laughs> level, because I personally think some of the regulations, like for example, um, for a medical doctor to treat a patient virtually, they have to be licensed in the state where the patient is, mm -hmm. which creates an intolerable burden um, for really second opinions from the Orthodox community, as well as from somebody like myself. Uh, and I think that could be changed at a federal level if enough people complained about it. Excellent point. Well, thank you, Dr. Linda. We so appreciate your time today. And um, 
keep doing the good work. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate this opportunity. And I hope that you all will continue to do your great work as well. Thanks. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Once again, I'm Kelly A. Turner, PhD, cancer researcher and founder of the Radical Remission Project. If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission Project or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission healing factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission health coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors, and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing, would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease, or perhaps even no evidence of disease, you can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and Cat Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla Mans produced by Ryan Giroux, music by Batchbug. Follow the Stories That Heal wherever you get your podcasts.